good to have you with us. Um, I just want to um, thank and honour you guys from Living Water. Um, you guys are just doing an incredible work. Um, we're blessed to have you with us. So thank you. Um, we're going to jump into that passage. Uh, before we do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would quiet our hearts as we come to hear your word. Um, speak, minister to our hearts by your spirit. Um, we pray, do a mighty work of transformation today. Uh, we pray, do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you this question. What's the relationship between love and justice? Uh, justice is doing what's right, what's true. Uh, love is, what's, is doing what's kind and merciful. Uh, and these two, they often come to us in the form of a dilemma. Um, do I do what's just and right, or do I do what's loving and kind? Um, and as we'll see, it's, it's that dilemma that actually sits at the heart of our passage today. Uh, now, philosophers, they've, they've got all sorts of opinions um, about the relationship of love and justice. Some say they're opposed to each other. Um, others say that they're actually just two sides of the same coin. Um, and all of us will probably tend to gravitate towards one more than the other. Uh, but that's probably far less shaped by the opinions of philosophers. probably has far more to do with the family we grew up in, um, the culture we live in. Uh, but all of us will have a bent towards either pursuing justice or love. Um, these little differences, they can often come up in like those common personality tests, you know, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, stuff like that. Um, and so if you know the Myers-Briggs, the fact that I am an INTJ will tell you... <laughs> Uh, that'll tell you something about the way that I think, um, the kinds of things that I value. Um, and you can see how it might play out at a cultural level as well. Um, if you have grown up in an honour-shame culture, you'll probably be aware of some of these differences. Um, the commentator John Woodhouse, um, he actually pushes this one step further. And he says, that question of love and justice, it's not just a personal thing or a cultural thing for us can also be a political thing. Um, have a look at what he says. He says, We often experience an insoluble tension between justice and love. Um, at the risk of over an oversimplification of complex issues, the difficult political tensions between so-called uh, right-wing and left-wing political views often seem to be an expression of this tension. Right-wing views tend to care about righteousness, justice, and ensuring people get what they deserve. Uh, Left-wing views tend to emphasise compassion and kindness and helping people in ways they do not deserve. Uh, and he goes on. Uh, this caricature uh, will not please many who identify themselves with either side of the political divide. My point is that we often find ourselves having to choose to prioritise justice and related ideas of truth, law and responsibility over love and such things as compassion, kindness, forgiveness and generosity or the other way around. Now, maybe he's oversimplifying, but it's at least thought-provoking uh, and should at least prompt us to consider um, our own preferences, our own set of values. But then we could also ask the theological question as well. Is God loving or is he just? Or is he both? And if he is both, is he equally loving and equally just? Um, or is one more important than the other? Um, Today's passage is all about answering those questions. Uh, and in particular, uh, we're going to see two things. Two things. First, this passage is going to show us that love and justice must always go together. We need both. 
Uh, and to preference one over the other is actually to destroy both. But that's only the first part, because as we've seen, holding them together is actually easier said than done. And so we also need to know how to hold them both together. Uh, that's the second thing this passage does. Uh, in terms of a structure, uh, we're going to look at that first thing about needing to hold them both together. We're going to do that under two headings. Uh, so uh, first, we're going to look at what happens when you put justice over love. And then second, the flip side, love over justice. Uh, once we've done that, we're going to finish by exploring okay, how do we actually hold them both together. So let's jump in. Uh, we're going to need to start with a little bit of context. Um, the reason why is that our passage, um, it's actually set about five to ten years after uh, the events that we looked at last week. Uh, and a lot has changed. Um, Amnon, he is dead. Um, uh, David's firstborn son, he's dead and buried. Um, he was actually killed by Absalom. Uh, Absalom is one of David's other sons. And Absalom, he's the kind of one of the main players in our passage today. Um, as an aside, it looks like David actually had a son in between Amnon and Absalom, but he pretty quickly drops out of the picture. We think he probably died, uh, maybe young. So all of that means Absalom is now the heir to the throne. But as it happens, he's an impatient guy. Um, he doesn't want to have to wait around for his dad, David, to die to become king. Uh, and so he starts a rebellion. Um, he starts a conspiracy. Uh, all of that is chapter 15. We won't read it. But basically, Absalom, he gets a whole bunch of his closest friends and allies, and they go down to a place called Hebron. And there they say, David isn't our king anymore. Absalom, you are our king now. Uh, and what does David do about it? He runs. As soon as he hears about this conspiracy, he gets up, he takes his closest friends and allies, and they get out of Jerusalem. Um, but they don't just leave Jerusalem. They actually cross over east of the Jordan River and they go right to the outer rim of Israel's border. Um, they're in a place called Mahanaim. Um, it's basically the ancient Israelite equivalent of like Dubbo um, or like Orange. Um, no offense. Um, <laughs> uh, this, this place, Mahanaim, that's where part of our story is set today. But it isn't just enough for Absalom to have David kind of exiled. He wants him dead. Because as long as David is alive, Absalom will never really be king. And so for the context for our passage is Absalom, he has gathered a huge army from all of Israel, and they are marching to Mahanaim to kill David. And so you can imagine David's there. He's got his men. They're in this small town. And there is this army approaching and so we pick it up from verse 1. We're going to spend a bit of time just working through. We reread, David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Uh, David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. So what does David do? Well, he does what he does best. He gets ready to fight. Uh, he organizes his army and puts a third under uh, Joab and a third under Joab's brother and another third under a guy called Ittai. Um, Joab, 
he's going to become a key player in this story as well. Uh, Joab, he is uh, David's right-hand commander. Uh, And we learn a few things about Joab uh, in this book. Um, The first is that Joab, he is fiercely loyal to David. Fiercely loyal. But the second is that Joab, he has an incredibly strong sense of justice. He finds it almost impossible to show anyone mercy. Um, If you go back to chapter 3, David calls Joab a hard man. He's a hard man. Uh, In in the modern proverb, he's not afraid to break a few eggs to make an omelette. And this is the man leading David's army. Now, at first, David... David wants to go with them. I'll come with you. But they pretty quickly point out, actually, the only one Absalom wants is you, David. So you stay there. You stay safe. Uh, and they say this wonderful line, David, you are worth 10,000 of us. Uh, we'll come back to that later. But for now, David, he stays in Mahanaim and his army marches out. Um, but just as they're leaving, uh, he has one final word for them. Uh, it's verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom, for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So what's going on here? David wants his army to go easy on Absalom. That makes no sense politically. Um, Absalom, he's a traitor. He is a murderer. Uh, And given the chance, he would kill David without hesitation. Um, And David knows that Absalom deserves to face justice. And so did you notice what he said? Um, He says, be gentle with the young man, Absalom, not for his sake, but for my sake, Um, for David's. He's not so much speaking as the king, but just as a father. Uh, And this is where we start to feel that tension between justice and love. But with that final word from David, he sends his army off. And over the next couple of verses, we're told that the battle happened in a place called the Forest of Ephraim. Um, We're told David's army, they were victorious over Absalom's, at least in part because Absalom's army, they just had no survival skills. Um, Did you notice? It says the forest devoured more of Absalom's men than the sword. Um, This is like, it's a bit of a forbidden forest. They needed bear grills. Um, and they don't have him. Um, but the author, he, the author's really only interested in one scene in particular. Uh, this is it. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding on kept on going. Um, it's quite a funny scene. Like... Um, Yeah, we'll get to that. But a couple of things to know. Um, He's riding on a mule. Did you notice that? Um, That's half donkey, half horse. That's significant because only the king rode on a mule. Like, just as an, this is not in the script. That makes no sense in my head. Surely you'd want a horse, wouldn't you? It's bigger and stronger. Anyway, he's on a mule because that's what the king does. Uh, By the way, that's why Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Same thing. Um, And by riding this mule, he's communicating, I'm the king now. It's a power play. Um, But oh, how the mighty fall, or in this case, kind of the opposite. Um, He's riding along. um, His hair gets caught in the tree. He gets coat hanged. Mule keeps going. Uh, 
he's just, he's hanging there. Um, it's significant that his hair gets caught though. Um, if you go back to chapter 14, we read that Absalom, he just had this glorious mane of flowing locks. Like he is Garnier Fructus. Like <laughs> this guy has hair. Um, that is Absalom. And so isn't it ironic that the symbol of his pride became his downfall? Um, and there he hangs, helpless, hanging by his hair in this tree, when it just so happens that one of David's men should come along. And so here's the dilemma for this guy. Does he go ahead and kill Absalom? Because after all, he's the enemy. He's a traitor. But he remembers, ah, David said, be gentle with Absalom. And so what does he do? Does he pursue justice or does he pursue love? What would you do if you were that man? Uh, well, this guy, he clearly feels like he doesn't have the authority to make that call. So he, he leaves Absalom hanging there and he says, let me t- mate, let me talk to my boss. <laughs> I'll get back to you. Uh, so he goes, he goes and gets Joab, Joab, the man of justice. Uh, and after a bit of back and forth, Joab takes his men and they kill Absalom. They cut him down. And after that, the battle is over. Uh, no one else needs to die. And so Joab, he just calls off the attack. And so Absalom, he's dead. Um, In verses 16 to 18, we have this funny thing about stones and monuments. Um, What it is, it's a a contrast between two stone monuments. Um, The first is the stack of stones that they just piled on top of his dead body. That's a death like a criminal. Uh, But the second stone monument is the one that Absalom had previously set up uh, to honour himself in a place called the King's Valley. Uh, The point, again, is to show us how the symbol of his pride became his downfall. Um, God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Now, uh, from verses 19 through to the rest of the chapter, um, we've got this kind of slightly long, slightly complicated story about who's going to be the one to go and tell David that his son is dead. Um, We won't read all of it, but it starts with a guy called Ahimaz. Uh, He says something important in verse 19. Uh, We read... Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. So he wants to be the one to tell David the news. Um, But he uses two really interesting words. Um, The first, when he says, let me take the news, that's actually the Hebrew word for evangelism. Um, which is simply to bring good news. It's gospel language. Uh, And so Ahimaaz, he thinks that he is bringing David good news, a gospel. But what is this gospel he wants to take to David? Well, the second interesting word that he uses uh, is the word for justice. Now, um, the NIV kind of translates it slightly clunkily as vindicated him by delivering him. Um, In Hebrew, that's just one word, and it's the word for justice. Uh, What's the point? Ahimaaz, he wants to bring David a gospel of justice. Uh, Absalom is dead. Justice has been done. But how does David respond to this gospel of justice? Have a look at verse 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, 
Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Um, it's perhaps one of the most heartfelt and heartbreaking laments in all of Scripture. Remember David, he's lost two, three, maybe more sons already. Uh, like, I hope you can feel the pain in his words. But what should we make of his lament? I mean, after all, Absalom, he's a traitor. He's a murderer. Like, is David just being weak? You know, shouldn't he be content, at least just content, that justice has been done? Um, Have a listen to what commentator John Woodhouse says. David loved Absalom. But David was unable to save Absalom from the consequences of his rebellion. Joab saw that justice won. Politically... Joab was almost certainly right, but politics isn't everything. David had experienced God's grace when he had behaved as wickedly as Absalom. Can it be right to dismiss David's love for his son as weakness? I do not think so. Um, I think he strikes right to the heart of the issue when he says, David had experienced God's grace when he had behaved as wickedly as Absalom. Um, See, David, he understood something that Joab didn't. Um, David knew that if he wanted God to take a sword to Absalom, then God would have to take a sword to him too, at least according to a gospel of justice. See, David, he was no more innocent than Absalom. Think back Bathsheba, Uriah. David, he's got blood on his hands. And yet he had been shown mercy and love. The Lord had taken away his sin. Uh, This is the problem of justice without love. Um, If God is only just, then yes, he will bring justice against all the evil and the wickedness out there in the world. But what's to stop that same justice falling on us? Because after all, who of us would say that we've never done wrong? Um, You know, in the New Testament... There's this moment, um, Jesus is walking along with some of his disciples and they say, Jesus, shall we call down fire on the Samaritans, the outsiders? Um, and Jesus rebukes them. Uh, and I wonder if, if they had pushed him on it, whether he would have said, don't you know that if I had to call down fire on them, I'd have to call it down on you as well. Um, Jesus actually says something to that effect. Uh, Matthew 7, 1, he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Can you see, we can't cry out for God, to God for justice without at the same time crying out to him to have mercy on us, to not bring his judgment against us. Have a listen to what Yale professor Miroslav Volf says. He says, once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation and judgment, there is no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. Which ironically is what happens to Joab. It's 1 Kings 2. Can you see that a a, a gospel of pure justice is only good news to the person who's never sinned, who's without fault? Um, This is the problem 
of justice without love? Um, And what effect should it have on us? Humility. Humility. But if that is justice without love, then what about love without justice? Uh, Love without justice. For that, we're going to turn to that first section of chapter 19. And it starts when Joab, he hears that David is grieving. Um, Have a look. Joab uh, was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. He hears about David's grief. Um, You know, uh, grief is really an expression of love. uh, Because grief is what you experience when you lose what you love. Uh, Grief is a sign of love. And Joab, he notices But he also notices that David's grief creates a problem. Uh, And we see it there in verses 2 and 3. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. Can you see what's going on here? Uh, David's grief had actually resulted in a kind of shaming of his people. Um, You can see that language of shame there at the end. Um, And the reason why is because David is grieving as if his men had failed. Um, Which, at least in David's eyes, they had. You remember, deal gently with my son. And so instead of being uh, welcomed home to this victory march, um, the men, they're forced to just sneak in like a bunch of cowards who flee from battle. And so we're told that the day of victory was turned into mourning. Uh, Not in a good sense, not as if they were sharing in the king's grief, but in a bad way. Uh, They had risked their lives for David. Remember, you are worth 10,000 of us. And now David had shamed them and turned them into enemies. Um, Can you see how David's love for Absalom had actually led him to neglect his love for others and to actually deny justice? Uh, This is a serious problem. And Joab notices these are his men. Uh, And so what does he do? He comes to David and they have a little chat. Uh, We see it verse 5. He says, today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Um, You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Now, maybe he's exaggerating, but there's at least an element of truth to it. Uh, Because look at what he says next. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you do not go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. Uh, This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. Now David, he knows that there's some truth to this because he does exactly what Joab says in the verses that follow. But can you see what's going on? David, he was willing to let justice go. He was willing to let wrongs go unpunished. And ultimately, it led him to hate and shame those who love him. It's love without justice. Um, Remember what his men said. You are worth 10,000 of us. 
And now David says, I would give 10,000 of you just to get my son back. It's love without justice, which is ultimately a kind of hate, which is neither loving nor just. What he should have done is disciplined his son. Um, Remember that one of David's big problems was his complete inability to discipline his sons. Um, Given the chance, I suspect David could have very well handed over the whole kingdom to Absalom just to get his son back. What he should have done is pursued both love and justice. Um, Notice it was actually God who brought Absalom to justice. If you go back to chapter 17, verse 14, we're told God had determined uh, to bring disaster on Absalom. God was the one who brought Absalom to justice. Um, Can you see love and justice always need to go together? But our culture finds this very difficult to accept. Uh, And the reason why I say this is because our culture, it finds it very difficult to accept the idea of a God who is both loving and just. We're all okay with a God who's loving and kind of merciful. That kind of a God makes sense to us. But what about a God who will judge wrongdoing with wrath? Uh, That we find very difficult to accept. Um, That's what's going on when somebody says, how could a good God send people to hell? Uh, We have a big problem with a God who judges. You're probably already starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Um, Remember, it was Jesus who said, don't fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Um, I have personally struggled with this uh, for some time. Um, I want to share something with you that I have found profoundly helpful in making my peace with the judgment of God. Uh, It's Miroslav Volf again. It's long. It's helpful. Um, He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Can you see what he's saying? If God wasn't wrathful, he wouldn't be loving Um, A wrathless God is one who stands by and does nothing in the face of wickedness and evil. 
Um, In a certain sense, the wrath of God is actually the hope of the oppressed uh, because he will bring justice even when nobody else will. See, the God of the Bible, he is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. And at least in the character of God, they are exactly the same thing. He is simply God. Um, He's loving because he's just and he's just because he's loving. And because of that, love and justice always need to Um, to go together to preference one over the other is actually to destroy both. But the question is how, how, how do we actually hold these two together? Uh, That's the question I want to explore with the rest of our time Uh, at risk of oversimplification. Joab, he put justice over love. And uh, at least in this case, David seemed to put love over justice, but what would it have looked like? for love and justice to go together in this particular situation. See, part of the point of this story is actually just the tragedy of it. Like, what was he supposed to do? Like, if he lets his son live, he risks not only losing the throne, but his own life as well. Um, Now, remember, Absalom, he's got a lot of supporters in high places, and so locking him up probably wouldn't last for very long. Um, As long as he's alive, Absalom is a threat. But if David lets his son die, he loses yet another son. He has his heart broken again. Either way, it is a lose-lose. And at least for now, it seems impossible for David to pursue both love and justice. Uh, For now, they seem incompatible. But we could also say the same of God. Like, how is it possible for him to show love and mercy to the sinner while at the same time upholding justice for the victim and the oppressed. How does he do it? How does he do it? He forgives. He forgives. Uh, Forgiveness means three things. First, forgiveness means naming the wrong. Naming the wrong. Uh, See, once uh, a wrong is done, it can't be undone. Imagine you're um, having an argument with a loved one or something. And you say something that you immediately regret. And even if you say, I didn't mean it, I take it back. It can never really be taken back. The word has been said. Uh, Or in a different situation, the temptation might be to minimize the wrongdoing and say, I wasn't really wrong. Maybe it was just an accident. But then that's not really forgiveness, is it? Uh, All of those things are actually just attempts to rewrite the past And to say that something which was wrong wasn't really wrong after all. But it doesn't change the fact that the wrong was done. And that's why we need to do the hard work of forgiving. Uh, First step is naming the wrong and acknowledging it, saying, yes, that thing you did was wrong. But that's only the first step. The second step is uh, after naming the wrong to pardon the wrongdoer, to pardon the wrongdoer, which means saying, yes, what you did was wrong, but I won't hold it against you. I will treat you as if you'd never done the wrong. But then the question is, what happens to justice? Who bears the responsibility for the wrongdoing? Which leads to the third step, which is by far the hardest. The third step is to bear the cost yourself. For you to take responsibility for the wrongdoing instead of the person who really did it. 
to absorb the cost, the penalty. And it's this third step that makes forgiveness not just something you say, but something you do. So you name the wrong, you pardon the wrongdoer, and then you take the cost. And I wonder if deep down, David knew this. Did you notice what sat right in the middle of that lament over his son? Right there in the middle, he says this. My son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, if only I had died instead of you. He says, oh, that I would bear the cost for your sins, Absalom. Oh, that I might die and you might live. How does God pay the cost? How does he absorb the cost for our sins? Um, Have you ever noticed how many stories there are of sons dying? Uh, Not just in 2 Samuel, but across the whole Bible. Um, And so over the last six six chapters of 2 Samuel alone, David has lost both the son that was born to Bathsheba and now his firstborn son, Amnon, as well. Uh, Is there something going on? Or think all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 22. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he was saved at the last second by a ram caught in a branch. And now here in our chapter, we find not a ram caught in a branch, but a son where he hangs, dying for his sins. And so should it come as a surprise to us when Jesus, the son of God, would also hang, dying on a tree, not for his sins, but for ours. Paul says this, Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, sometimes, as someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died instead of us. And in so doing, he bore the cost for our sins, absorbing its penalty so that we might be pardoned, that we might be separated from our sins. Can you see, it's only at the cross that love and justice meet. This is how God can be both perfectly loving and perfectly just. It's only by forgiving our sins in Jesus This is what Paul says actually a little earlier, Romans 3. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's only at the cross that God can be both just and loving, the justifier of the ungodly. Paul tells us how this can be true of you as well. The forgiveness found in Jesus is to be received by faith. Um, If you haven't done that before, why not do it today? But that kind of mercy, it doesn't just set us free from our own sins. It actually sets us free to show that same kind of mercy when we are sinned against. Um, To pass on the forgiveness, as it were. Uh, Remember... The only reason David had any hope of showing mercy to Absalom because he he had first experienced that mercy in his own life when his sins were taken away. 
See, Joab, he says, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Why? Because he loved you, even when you were his enemy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are perfectly loving and perfectly just. And yet we are not. Um, We confess we are so often unloving and unjust. And so we pray, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our sins. Uh, We pray that confidently, knowing that you have pardoned us. You have separated us so far from our sins that nothing can now separate us from you. Father, teach us to love like you, to forgive like you. We pray it, do it through your spirit. And we pray, do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.